Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Patient pal, the Fed says it will keep rates lower for longer, but wants Congress to help too. Conceptual concerns, President Trump expresses doubts on the TikTok Oracle deal. And a snowstorm after a red-hot debut for Snowflake, we talk to the CEO. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. Welcome to First Move and a stolen cold winner of a show for you today. Why? Well, the CEO of Snowflake, as I mentioned there, will join us. The company whipping up an investor storm, at least in their public debut yesterday. The reception, anything but chilly. Snowflake ended the session up more than 100%. Look at that from where it priced at $120 a share. What does that actually mean in terms of how investors are valuing this company? Well, Take Microsoft. If you gave its future business operations the same kind of value as investors gave Snowflake yesterday, then Microsoft would have an effective market cap of some $17 trillion. It would be bigger than China's economy. That's the kind of comparison. It's a bit apples for oranges, but it gives you a sense. And we'll thank Barron's because they did the uh, financial work for me on that. Meanwhile, on Wall Street, gains made uh, earlier this week melting away after the Federal Reserve meeting. And that continues pre-market. Chairman Jay Powell was uh, as patient as ever, saying rates will be on hold for a further three years plus. But it seems investors were hungry for more detail on exactly what might trigger a future rate rise, even if it is sometime in the distance, especially given the Fed's more relatively upbeat outlook on the recovery. It sees the economy contracting by 3.7% this year. It's a smaller drop than was feared back in June. The bottom line is, though, the stock market matters way less than all the struggling families out there. Powell also reiterating his demand for more financial aid from Congress. This as an additional 860,000 Americans signed up for first-time benefits last week. Almost 30 million people still receiving some kind of financial assistance at the last check. Wall Street weakness, meanwhile, spreading overseas too. Europe is lower. Asian markets pulled back too. The Bank of Japan meeting overnight, offering little in the way of fresh support, but a big shift potentially afoot in the UK. Talk advice given to the Bank of England, perhaps about the implications of cutting rates below zero on hard Brexit fears. That triggering, as you can see, a drop in the pound. Lots to discuss. Let's get more in our drivers. Christine Romans joins us for more. Christine, lots of technical issues and elements, I think, discussed in this Fed meeting at the presser. But the bottom line, and I've said it twice and I'll say it a third time, the Fed wants more action from Congress. 
Absolutely. I mean, and, and look, the virus is in control here. So Congress is going to need to pass more support. That's what Fed Chairman Jay Powell clearly saying, and he has said it uh, before. And there's a little bit of nervousness on the street this morning because it doesn't look like there's much, much action from Congress at the moment. And there's a big fear that, that you really won't have anything happen until after an election. The president weighing in on this yesterday, saying that he wants a bigger number. But it seems the president is at odds with his own Republican Party, not necessarily the Democrats, who, by the way, for the record, uh, months ago passed three and a half trillion dollars of Main Street aid, including aid to states that would pay for teachers and firefighters and, and some of the uh, and some of the really glaring holes in budgets that states are going through. You know, and, and I think that Powell was really pointed when he said we can't forget the people, the 11 million people who are out of work. Listen to what he said. There are still roughly 11 million people still out of work due to the pandemic. And a good part of those people were working in industries that are likely to struggle. Those people may need additional additional support as they try to find their way and uh, through what will be a, a difficult time for them. I mean, and those are people who work, uh, who are already out of work, or there are people who are recently laid off in, in bars and restaurants and airlines and, and small business. You can, see the, you can see the numbers every week of the kind of layoffs we're continuing to have. This is an economy that isn't shut down anymore, right? I mean, the economy, this is an economy grappling with a virus that has not been contained. This is the way it looks right now. Yeah, and this is this is the critical point, and we will continue to bring it back to the real economy and real people. I will, though, ask about the market reaction here, because I can imagine some people going, hang on a second, the, right. the growth forecasts are better, the unemployment rate that they're anticipating is not as bad as we were expecting. They're going to keep rates on hold for what feels like forever. Why the disappointment? What more do investors want here? I mean, I think... Don't you think investors are addicted to stimulus, yes. big stimulus, and the big, big stimulus from the Fed has already happened and is still happening? There's, there, there was no new surprise, no new shiny uh, tool in this toolbox this time. It was a reminder that Congress needs to work, that the uh, outlook is uncertain. I mean, the Fed chief was very clear that the virus makes the outlook here uh, in, the, in the middle term uncertain. So, yeah, the economy crashed. It didn't crash as bad as the Fed had, had thought in the beginning, but it still crashed. And and the outlook is still uncertain. I think also there were a couple of dissenters, right? And I think that that has sparked a little bit of concern about, well, wait a minute, could the Fed, you know, could, could there be a hawkish camp uh, coming, being developed in the Fed? We'll see. Yeah. And all this, of course, dependent on a vaccine or not. Right. The market just wants perfect clarity and no one can provide it right now. Yeah. Thank you for Christine Romans there. All right. President Trump casting doubt on a proposed deal between TikTok and Oracle. Under the partnership, China's ByteDance would keep a majority-owned stake in TikTok. We're looking into that from the standpoint of ByteDance. We don't like that. I've been just conceptually, I can tell you I don't like that. Uh, that has not been told to me yet. That has been reported, but it hasn't been told to me. It could be very accurate reporting for a change. So if that's the case, I'm not going to be happy with that. Selena Wang is in Hong Kong. Selena, I mean, he said conceptually, but then he hadn't seen the details of the deal. So uh, we'll set that fact aside. He also said, and this is the important thing, and we keep coming back to this, that you know, it comes down to national security. Selena, what do we know, one, about this deal and whether or not ultimately Americans' data will be safe? Because that's going to be the convincing factor, surely. 
Well, Julia, you have Oracle and TikTok here twisting themselves over knots to thread this needle to both please D.C. as well as Beijing. In terms of the deal, a source close to the matter told me that TikTok would be creating this global business headquartered in the U.S. in which Oracle would have a minority stake in it. ByteDance would retain majority ownership. Oracle would be processing the U.S. data as well as having more oversight over the technology. It would also likely agree to some limitations to put some sort of firewall between ByteDance and TikTok to satisfy some of those national security concerns. Now, Sources have told me that Oracle and ByteDance are, of course, confident that this does solve those national security concerns. But you already have many lawmakers saying that they take real issue with this deal, that it doesn't do enough to protect American data. It is, of course, a far cry from Trump's initial statements that he wanted a complete outright sale of this app. You have Senator Josh Hawley saying that this app should be rebuilt from the ground up and that if there are any constraints, perhaps the only way to protect American data is to ban the app altogether. It's quite fascinating, isn't it? I mean, of all the complications, and as you said, this is a very fine needle to try and thread. I think eyebrows everywhere unanimously were raised when the president talked about the U.S. administration getting its cut, getting some money as a result of this um, this deal being done. And the president also addressed the complications of that yesterday as well. Well, Julia, there are a lot of things happening in terms of this particular deal that are completely unprecedented. In terms of what could happen next, though, there are really three options. President Trump could ultimately kill the deal. He could say yes and go ahead with it, despite some of the concerns. Or the government could tell ByteDance and Oracle to go back to the drawing board and come up back with something better. If that were the case, experts tell me that this could potentially continue to drag out, potentially even dragging out beyond this November presidential election. And when it comes to those national security concerns, a lot of the experts say that these fears are largely theoretical at this point, although there are legitimate concerns about Chinese ownership of such an influential social media app in the country. But this entire saga and drama over ByteDance and TikTok's ownership, they say, really overshadows the more important question, which is, that the U.S. needs stronger standards and legislation to guard against data collection across apps from every country, including in the United States. Yeah, you raise a great point. And uh, I will uh, add to that, whether it's President Trump or President Biden, I don't think either of them is getting a cut of this deal, whether it goes ahead or not. Selena Wang, thank you so much for the analysis there. All right, staying with the president, the president also casting doubt on the congressional testimony of one of his top health officials. He says the director of the Centers for Disease Control was confused when he gave lawmakers his opinion about the possible timeline for a vaccine rollout and on wearing masks. John Harwood joins us now. John, uh, words fail me. The problem is we've seen this all along. We've got the president contradicting his his own health officials, and it just adds to the broader uncertainty. And of course, the timing on this contravenes elections in two months' time, and that feels like it's the big problem. Julia, it was an extraordinary scene yesterday uh, at a time when the United States continues to struggle with roughly 40,000 new cases a day, 1,000 deaths every day. We've just gotten news this morning that 860,000 Americans filed for unemployment claims, 26 consecutive week of higher than ever before the pandemic, showing the financial cost of the pandemic. While all that's happening, a president who is losing in the polls, who's looking to give the American people some reason to embrace his handling of this, 
was contradicting Robert Redfield, the head of his CDC. He did it on mask wearing, which is the single simplest, most effective thing Americans themselves can do right now to protect themselves and others. And he also did it on the crucial question of when we're going to get a vaccine. Take a listen. I think there will be vaccine that initially be available sometime between November and December, but very limited supply and will have to be prioritized. If you're asking me when is it going to be generally available to the American public so we can begin to take advantage of vaccine to get back to our regular life, I think we're probably looking at third, late second quarter, third quarter, 2021. I think he made a mistake when he said that it's just incorrect information. And I called him, and he didn't tell me that. And I think he got the message maybe confused. Maybe it was stated incorrectly. No, we're ready to go immediately as the vaccine is announced. Of course, uh, Robert Redfield did not misunderstand the question, did not get it incorrectly. He was reflecting the consensus of public health officials that while we may get a vaccine approved, within a matter of weeks even, uh, because trials are well along, uh, and there may be some doses available for healthcare workers and other particularly vulnerable people, it will not be until uh, months into 2021 when the vast majority of Americans are able to have access to a vaccine. That's what Robert Redfield uh, was communicating. That's not good enough for President Trump as he's trying to catch Joe Biden in the polls. And that's why we had that disagreement yesterday. It's very difficult for someone like the CDC director to continue when his credibility is continuing to be questioned. John, do we end up splitting hairs on this, do you think? If they get approval, if we get full of regulatory approval for a vaccine before the election, the president can at least say, look, it's out there, it is being used and is available, even if it's not, as we've discussed, for broader use. Yes, and that would be a good thing if it, if it happens. There, it there's would. no doubt about that. Everyone wants to see a safe and effective vaccine approved, and it would be a good thing. It would be a step forward if healthcare workers could get vaccinated or if vulnerable people could get vaccinated. Uh, nobody disagrees with that. The question is, what do you promise the American people, and are you suggesting that you are pushing this process forward faster than the science permits it to go in order to achieve a political result. And that's the question that President Trump puts on the table over and over and over again. Yeah, we need the truth if we want people to trust. John Harwood, thank you so much for that. All right, these are the stories making headlines around the world. Tropical Depression Sally is saturating parts of southeastern United States right now. The storm, which had been a Category 2 hurricane, has left more than half a million people without power and caused catastrophic flooding in parts of Alabama and the Florida panhandle. Aides to Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny says he was poisoned in a hotel room in Siberia last month, not at the airport as initially thought. They say traces of Novichov have been found on a water bottle that was taken from his room shortly after he became critically ill. All right, so to come here on First Move, Snowflake Snowballs shares in the software company more than doubled on its first day of trade. We get the take from the CEO and food in flight. I speak to the company pioneering the delivery of meals by drone. iFood's CEO joins First Move. It's all coming up. Stay with us.
Welcome back to First Move. A bit of an early fall chill on Wall Street. Market set to drop for a second straight session with the tech sell-off set to resume, as you can see, by Nasdaq futures there. Investor disappointment also over the Fed's latest policy statement. And the presser seems to be at play here as well. A bit of a thaw perhaps underway for IPO Snowflake too. The software firm shares set to pull back after yesterday's more than 100% pop. Oh, please, it's down 6%. That's still an ice sculpture in my world. Losses pretty minor, though, given the firm's sky-high valuations, which we will discuss. In the meantime, the US reporting that 860,000 more people signed up for the first time at jobless claims last week, a fresh sign that more fiscal help is needed from Congress. It looks like President Trump also wants a big bill now, too. The question is, will he get it? Mohammed Alirian joins us now. He's chief economic advisor at Alliance. Mohammed, fantastic to have you on the show as always. I care a lot less, quite frankly, about the market disappointment than I do about the issues that uh, Fed Chair Jay Powell underscored. The fact that the unemployment rate belies those that simply can't find work at this moment and, and the challenges for millions of Americans. You're absolutely right. He painted a pretty uncertain and unsettling picture and used it in two ways. Uses to justify what was a very uber dovish response wasn't well communicated, but it was a very uber dovish response. And secondly, he used it to push very hard for fiscal action, including state and gov- local and state government aid. So he, he went quite far for a central bank um, Fed chair. Normally, they don't like going deep into something that comes under the auspices of Congress. Yeah, he's had to walk that line for a while now. The irony is that the Fed was so good in stabilizing the system that they've given cover and allowed Congress to take their time and and play politics here. Only if you measure it by the stock market, and I know a lot of people do so, the Fed has been exceptionally successful in boosting asset prices well beyond what fundamentals would validate. When it comes to the real economy, however, the Fed has been pushing on a string. In fact, during, during a rather difficult press conference for him, he was put on the spot by being asked, why is the Main Street lending program not working as well as it should? And there's a sense that the Fed is less, much less effective when it comes to the real economy, but the politicians take comfort from the stock market. They shouldn't, but they do. Yeah, they shouldn't, but they do. Do you have sympathy for investors, though, that wanted more clarity over the conditions upon which rates may rise in the future, particularly when, whether it's politically or in terms of the science, we're putting so much weight on the appearance of a vaccine? Sympathy, no. Understanding, yes. Um, And let me explain the difference. The market has become like a spoiled child. Every time it gets something from the Fed, even if it's more than what the Fed they were expecting, they immediately ask, okay, give me more, give me more. So that has been the market behavior. The market has been conditioned to expect the, from the Fed and push the Fed. And what I worry about, Julian, you know that, is that you get this self-reinforcing interdependency that ultimately is not very healthy for the system. What happens, Mohammed? What happens next? So my great hope is that we get significant policy action outside the Fed. And I'm talking not just about 
fiscal policy. I'm talking about a basic understanding that you, we need to do, do things, boost productivity and boost household economic security. That we get these actions to allow fundamentals to validate asset prices. That is my hope. My worry is that's going to be the other way around, is that we're not going to get it. And at some point, even the Fed, and that's a big statement, but even the Fed will not be able to maintain what has been an historic disconnect between elevated asset prices and, and a sluggish economy. Who's more likely to provide that? We're deep diving now into the realms of what happens after November. And I know that's complicated, but a President Biden and his administration versus a, a second term for President Trump and his administration, because that is something that investors need to be thinking about. We are just two months out from, from that decision being made, we think. We, yes, we are. And I think it has to, more to do with Congress than just the administration. Yes. If you get a split Congress, you're going to have issues. If you get, however, one party, whichever it is, capturing Congress, you will get more policy action. It will be different. It will emphasize different things, but you will get more policy action. Do investors need to be positioning for that today? Are they positioning for that today in what you're seeing? They are not. Um, and, and you talk about snowflake. Investors are in a complete liquidity conditioning. They have brushed aside one issue after the other. I've been following very closely. How, do, how, do, how does the market react to two things? One is the changing prospects, according to the poll, of the two candidates. And two is the amount of uncertainty about the run-up to the election and post-election. We have unusual uncertainty. And the answer to, to both these questions is the market doesn't react. Basically, the market is in a liquidity paradigm, and it takes a major shock to get it out of it. We've talked about that major shock in the past. You mentioned the S word, so I'm going to go there, snowflake. Even if we take the business itself out of it, if we look at what we saw yesterday, whether it was valuations, whether it was the dramatic spike up, is that a sign in your mind of excess liquidity, of irrational exuberance, or perhaps a flawed process of IPO, particularly given the market conditions at this moment? So while the IPO process is not perfect, it is about excessive risk taking. Mm. And I can give you a whole list of issues where we see it. We see it in IPOs. And let's talk again in three or four weeks time and see where Snowflake is trading then. We've seen you know, many of these that are the thing to have and everybody piles in and you get a self-reinforcing and then it, it, it reverses itself. But I can look at the amount of SPACs, which are special purpose vehicles that are raising money without telling you where they're going to invest the money. And people are giving them money. Look at bond issuance. Look at IPOs. I mean, the signs of excessive risk-taking, Julia, are all over. And that's what liquidity um, paradigms do. That's what they do. They create and encourage excessive risk-taking. Is the Fed negligent as all this happens, Mohammed? Because I feel like they're caught between the devil and the deep. They are. They're in a lose-lose-lose situation. They lose if they do more because they contribute to future financial stability. They, do if they, they lose if they do less because they disrupt a market that can then contaminate the economy. And they lose if they do nothing at all because investors are unhappy. So I sympathize um, where they are. I wish they hadn't gotten into this situation, but they are. The key issue is a handoff. We need this policy handoff that we talked about earlier. And unless we get it, 
then we are sitting on an increasingly volatile financial situation. Yeah, I agree. A very eloquent argument for that handoff. We hope we get it. Mohamed El Arian, the Chief Economic Advisor at Allianz. And congratulations once again on your new role. Your backdrop has changed. It's very beautiful. It's different, but it's very beautiful. See you soon. Yeah, I'm in day six of my 14-day mandated quarantine. I was going to ask you that. Yes, stay safe. Great to have you with us. Thank you. Over in the UK there now, of course. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Some uh, big thumbs up there from Wall Street that's open for business this Thursday. But I have to say, stock market's under pressure with the biggest losses coming from tech. The Nasdaq actually dropped more than 1% in yesterday's session two. Stocks falling amid disappointment in the Fed's policy statement yesterday. As we've discussed already, I think the markets wanted more clarity on what will trigger a rate rise and what will ultimately keep them low. A world of perfect information. Sadly, we don't have it, but the economic challenges remain crystal clear in today's jobless numbers. 860,000 more claims filed in just the last week alone. And Yelp now says 60% of US businesses shut during lockdowns will never open again, a total of almost 98,000 firms. The economic uncertainty playing out in bond markets today too, as you can see, yields currently under a bit of pressure. So that flight to safety going on there as well. Now, we knew it would be a big one, but not like this. Snowflake went public on Wednesday, and it turned out to easily be the biggest software IPO ever. Shares more than doubled, closing at around $250. That gives the company a valuation of $70 billion. That's bigger than Walgreens or Hershey, just to give you a sense. So why is Snowflake such a big deal? Well, it's all about the cloud. The company helps other businesses manage large amounts of data stored in cloud services and analyze that data too. We're now joined by the chairman and CEO of Snowflake, Frank Slootman. Frank, fantastic to have you with us. Uh, the best word I can use at this moment, I think, is wowzers. I'm sure for, for you, the team, investors, your workers, this is an in- indescribable moment. But, but try, what's the last 24 hours been like? No, it's been an absolute zoo, as you can imagine. Um, <laughs> you know, very exciting, obviously. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're thrilled to get such a strong uh, reception and uh, the investors that we've been talking to for, for over a year leading up to today, they just have very high conviction about the company, want to be big holders over a long period of time. Um, so it's a good start, but, uh, you know, as, as a lot of people have, have observed, uh, it was a pretty wild day yesterday. Yeah, this is not your first rodeo. This is the third time you've taken a, a company private. We just had Mohammed Alerian say that what we saw yesterday with your share price spike was a sign of irrational exuberance. Would you agree with that? Or would you also see perhaps flaws in the IPO process that retail investors were literally left scrambling here to, to buy your stock? Well, you know, I, I, exuberance is, is definitely, uh, you know, correct. Uh, you know, we always say, look, you know, uh, stock's worth what somebody wants to pay for it, no more, no less. So it's rational uh, in, in, in that regard. 
Markets get over their skis in the in the short term, uh, but in the long term, they they normalize, they get it right. So um, there there's, there is such a thing as a you know as a as a price demand curve, meaning that some people will just pay way more than others. And when when a market uh, starts up like this, then you know the stock price is going to start traversing you know up the uh, demand curve to the to the highest bidder. But the idea that you know we could have sold you know our entire offering. You know, at the price of the of the last uh, sale, obviously, is that, that that's unknowable and extremely unlikely. You know. Yeah, and I and I agree with you on that. So you're sort of arguing that at some point, gravity perhaps will apply. Let's assume it doesn't, and just try and justify the kind of valuation that we're talking about here. I mean, your revenue growth was 175 percent in the the fiscal year to January. Even if we just take a fraction of that, what's your sort of forecast for the next four or five years in terms of revenue growth? Can you keep and sustain this growing at 40 to 50 percent revenue growth, for example? Well, we're, you know, we're, uh, we're, we're not going to get ahead of ourselves. We, we have guided, uh, you know, in our uh, SEC disclosures and in our meetings in investors, you know, what we're willing to say at this point. But, you know, obviously, uh, and, and, and we're trying to manage expectations uh, as well so that people you know, don't get ahead of uh, where we are because, uh, you know, no purpose will be served by that. You know? So give it to me. What, what kind of growth are we, are we talking about here? No, I, I, I can't give you a numbers beyond what we've, we've already uh, put out there. You know, in our next, uh, in our first earnings announcements, you know, I will tell you, you know, we, we will provide guidance, uh, you know, to the markets. And we, we have a very measured uh process you know we're, we're fairly sober about these things you know we're not a you know a pump and dump company this is a marathon you know we're going to settle in and we're going to bring investors uh, along you know it's 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 all fun and games you know when people get this excited about you know being part of the snowflake journey and we're, we're excited as well but uh you know we're, we're here for for the long haul you know today we're getting up and we're just going back to work you know, one foot in front of the other, and that's uh, that's our culture. So we're gonna we're gonna provide really really tight guidance to uh, to our markets, so that uh, we don't get too much separation between you know what the company is thinking and and where markets might be. Do you think that separation exists today? Well, I mean, if you're, if you're at a hundred times, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, the negative revenue, uh, a case could be made. You know, so. Yeah, 100 percent. Let's talk about just even scaling to grow into a a bigger valuation. As you said, this is a long term prospect. And clearly your early investors are saying that precise thing. What's going to be the biggest challenge? Because cloud selling cloud products is about as hot as it gets out there. Hiring people in order to doing to do that selling in order to scale this business surely is going to be one of the biggest challenges. What's your sort of competitive edge even hiring to be able to scale this business? You know, you know, there's, there's a couple of different aspects to it, but you know, operationally, uh, you're right. I mean, we're we're providing resources, uh, you know, very very fast. We're hiring very very fast. Uh, you need to do these things in a very judicious manner, otherwise you know, organizations will implode on themselves. Um, you know, we've lived through in other companies, you know, very, very high growth trajectories. So, you know, we feel like, uh, you know, we have a good grasp of on how to do that. And the most important thing is we have a very crisp vision of what we want to do in the future. This whole notion of a data cloud, uh, a type of cloud that has never existed in the history of computing. And this is what investors got so excited about, it's sort of part of the exuberance that we observe because they're, they're seeing the potential and they just can't wait for that to come to fruition. 
But uh, you know, we're just excited to get out of bed every day and uh, and and work on that and, and make that happen. We're here to build companies. That's really uh, you know what's exciting to us. Explain that differentiating factor because I think there will be confusion for people out there going, you know, hang on a second, you're you're sort of a customer of some of the biggest cloud players out there, the IBMs, the Microsofts. You're also a competitor of them and, and will clearly be growing into that position. You're also partnering with some of them as well. Obviously, Salesforce bought into the story as well. What does that mean in practice? Opportunity, potential challenge going forward if the regulators turn around and go, uh, What's going on here? Uh, you know, it's definitely a more more complex world than the one we, we lived in. I mean, you're, you're correct. I mean, we're uh, you know when we work with these very large cloud platform players, depending on what day it is, you know, they can be a competitor, they can be a partner, and, and we're obviously very large customers of, of them as well, and, and right. growing in, in bounds. Uh, so it requires a lot of discipline. Um, you know, certainly from the top down, uh, we we get really good messages. People understand that they need vibrant ecosystems on these platforms. They need innovation. They need choice. They need best to breed uh, because otherwise they can't compete against their competitors, right? So there's a little bit of schizophrenia going on, and uh, depending on, on on what the moment says, you know, you may come down on on one side or or the other. You know, we're good friends one day, and the next day. You know, there's hostilities breaking up this place or other, you know, so. Yeah, I, I understand. So one of the big stories, and I think this played into the credibility and the excitement that we saw is Warren Buffett, known, Berkshire Hathaway at least, known for staying away from exactly what you are, these early stage, just going public tech companies. What did he see in your mind, and I guess it goes back to the point that we've been discussing throughout this, what ultimately is Snowflake's competitive edge now and in the future? Yeah, so one thing that's really important to know about Snowflake, that this is a product that was built with a clean sheet of paper by some of the world's greatest database technologists. Now, why does that matter? In, tech, in, in computing, what happens over and over again in each iteration of platforms is people carry legacy technology forward. Uh, this time around, with the transition to cloud, that just simply does not work. We cannot deliver on the promise of cloud in, in terms of its enormous scale, its enormous computational power with legacy architecture. Snowflake didn't do that. We just started over. Um, we are running on a public cloud only. We brought no legacy forward. And what, what we ended up with is just an incredibly potent platform, and it's just blown the doors off of everything that people have seen before. And that's why there's been such incredible uptake. Not to forget that this marketplace that we're in has a screaming need for, for, for very, very high scale and very, very high performance. And there's been pent-up demand literally for decades in this marketplace. And we're unleashing that. That's really what you're seeing. Yeah, and we're just at the beginning of the early stages of um, adoption. I think of cloud technology, the use of it and the analyzing the data that, that's out there. Frank, have you slept at all in the last 24 hours, you and your team? Or has it just been like well, nonstop? <laughs> it's been like a 10-day process. So yesterday was just a combination. I was about to say, yeah, it's a week. Never mind one day. Try and get some sleep. And congratulations again to you and the team. Thank you. Thank you. Frank Sludman, the chairman and CEO of Snowflake. All right, up next. Robots that shop and drones that deliver. This may be the future of food delivery as envisioned by Brazil's iFood. We've got the CEO next. Food 
has taken flight. Are we looking at the future of takeaway meal delivery while Brazilian food delivery service iFood is now pioneering delivery by drone? And as demand takes off, it's also testing robots that can get your grocery shopping. The pandemic clearly has turbocharged iFood's growth. Food orders are up 33% since March, and the number of restaurants on the service soared by 26% too. Joining us now is Fabrizio Bloisi. He's the CEO of iFood. So fantastic to have you on the show. Wow, you've seen some increased demand as a result of COVID. Just talk us through how you've handled that. Hello, Julia. Pleasure to be here with you today. You know, Believe me, our focus was not really growth over the last six months. Our focus, it was maybe the most challenge of our lives these months. We focusing make people safe, healthy, keep the delivery partners healthy, uh, contactless delivery. We really focusing make the ecosystem healthy and keep the restaurants alive. But I believe the I believe people uh, feel safe with our services and the demand is really growing. Yeah, I mean, I know you're covering more than what 212,000 restaurants as a result of this. Yes. To your point about safety, is that why you're pioneering drones or is it about more about time saving? Just talk us through the permission that you've got in Sao Paulo to at least start testing using drones. Sure. We really believe this service is just the start. We believe food delivery is going to grow 100 times from now. Many years ago, we used to do our own food at home. We don't think people are going to do their uh, uh, their food at home anymore. We believe people will eat all the time outside home. So we have to invest a lot in artificial intelligence so people really can, we can understand when people want to eat, how to deliver it easier and faster. And drones, is a, it's a, a necessary solution to be more efficient on that. We just got the, the permission to operate in some test areas in Sao Paulo. And uh, I'm sure this is going to, to be very important for us in the future. And you take, use the drone to take it from restaurant to a final delivery person that then gets it to the door. So it's just cutting out a piece of the journey. That's correct. Exactly. The interesting thing about our market is that everyone gets hungry at the same time. So we have 2 million people that at 7 p.m. they say, I want to eat now. So we have to use AI to really solve it, and we have to use drones to really reduce the production time, time and, the, and the production cost. So we can save the cost, the, the delivery time by around 15 minutes with drone. Today, we are doing that with a delivery partner. So the drone takes you from a dark kitchen to a condominium, and then some person gets it there and delivers to your home for safety reasons. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And the idea that everyone wants to eat all at once is um, a potent one. Mm -hmm. The big challenge here, I guess, is collecting data initially, the regulatory burden. Is this something that you think you can use more broadly, whether it's in Brazil or outside, as the company looks to scale up? The company is already growing a lot. We are doing 40 million deliveries per month, so serving 30 million people per, per month. I think the whole world is very concerned now about data privacy. We follow everything to be pioneer on that. So we have to keep the, the, the privacy of our customers, but using data, using artificial intelligence is the way to deliver cheaper, faster, healthier foods to our customers. So we have to use data, but considering data privacy, that is something that everyone has to invest more. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with you. Talk to me about the robots as well. How much work have you done on that with the groceries? We are doing we are doing drones through condominiums, but also uh, robots to make the delivery 
to take the, the food out of shopping center or inside condominiums too. Uh, again, we are doing that together with deliver partners. But I have to tell you, Julia, we are really just starting. Uh, over the next five years, as technology, over the last 100 years, they completely changed the way uh, uh, we do all of our work. Drones and robots will change how we operate food delivery. So we are really excited that, that, that we are ready to, to start operating it in, in cities right now. Yeah. And, you know, I have two choices now. I can talk to you about your business and the financials, or I can talk to you about what you're trying to do to keep Brazil's food ecosystem alive, because you've done some great things. You've extended health benefits mm -hmm. to some of your delivery partners. You've created solidarity mm -hmm. funds for those at highest risk. I know you've been reversing some of the delivery costs, so giving it back to the restaurants as well. Just talk me through giving yes. back, Fabrizio, because this is incredibly important. We're still in a pandemic and you're trying to help. Exactly. That, that's why the focus is healthy, is giving back to the society. I think the food delivery companies has this responsibility and that was our focus. It was really not growth. So we, we took the high risk groups, people that work for us out of work. Uh, they are receiving their money without work. We gave half a billion dollars in cash flow to restaurants so they can keep uh, alive because many restaurants are closing. We really have to understand that, that we have to use technology, artificial intelligence, all these tech companies to make the society better during this very tough time, to be partner of everyone that, that needs help now. We have done around 20 things. Our promotion was focusing on teaching people. We did a lot of communication to teach people how to avoid COVID transmission. And I think that's our responsibility. We, I think we have good impact here in Latin America, but th that's what they have to keep investing and using technology to get to this goal. I'm just going to make sure that people watching this understand what you just said there, because you said you injected more than, and it's $461 million in cash flow, i.e. advance payments for restaurants yeah. to make sure that they could keep going. This is a big exactly. deal, Fabrizio. Can you stay in business very quickly while you're doing all this? Can you we afford are, it? We, uh, we, are, we are right. We are, we are certain that this business is going to be very big, that uh, food delivery is just starting. So we have to invest now to really build this infrastructure. That's what we are doing now. Fabrizio, a pleasure to have you on. Come back and talk to me with your progress and um, what more you're doing to help. Stay safe, sir. Thank Good you. to be here. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you, Fabrizio Bloisi, there, the CEO of iFood. All right, racing for a COVID-19 vaccine and then rolling it out in droves. A German pharma company taking steps to increase production capacity. We're live in Berlin with the details. Developing a coronavirus vaccine is one thing. Making sure there's enough of it is a whole other challenge. And that's why Germany's BioNTech is acting to boost production capacity for its vaccine candidate, which it's developing with U.S. drug giant Pfizer. Fred Planken is in Berlin and has the details. Fred, how are they going about this? Hi there, Julia. Well, essentially, they're, they're buying a, a vaccine plant from another company. BioNTech announced today that they're going to buy a vaccine plant in the German city of Marburg from Novartis. And they say once they've outfitted that to their specifications and they start producing uh, the coronavirus vaccine there, of course, after obtaining regulatory approval, that that is going to that plant alone is going to be able to boost their output by about 750 million doses 
per year. Now, uh, this comes on a day that BioNTech CEO Ur Shahin once again said that he is confident that uh, he believes that uh, the vaccine candidate that they're currently working on together with the U.S. company Pfizer will be ready to seek approval by about the end of October. They say they're in the final stretch right now. They're actually looking for further participants in places with a lot of coronavirus so they can get more data, places like Brazil, places like Argentina. And then they're at the same time going to seek approval both from the FDA and also from the European regulatory body, the EMA. Now they say, uh, both Pfizer and BioNTech, that they're going to be able to produce, they hope, if everything goes according to plan, about 100 million doses of this BNT162 this year and about 1.3 billion doses next year. Of course, that new plant that they're acquiring now, they hope uh, will help them boost their output a great deal. One of the things that they've also announced today that at least a portion, uh, Julia, of that first batch of 100 million doses that they hope to have ready by the end of this year will go to the U.S. and another portion of that also will go to Europe as well, Julia. I'm sure there'll be a press conference here in the United States that perhaps uh, discusses that at some point in in the near future, Fred. Um, The timescale is just being collapsed here. It's phenomenal. Did they give us any sense of, and this Mm. has to be very quick, Fred, of how quickly they can take the 100 million Mm. they can create and actually get them out there? Well, obviously, a lot of that has to do with uh, with logistics, and logis- logistics right. is something that is always very uh, difficult. But they say that one of the things that's helping them along is that this is obviously a cooperation between a German company and a U.S. company, and obviously the lo- logistics that Pfizer has in the U.S. will help them get this out uh, uh, quicker than if BioNTech were doing this alone, or uh, in Europe, BioNTech with its facilities can get it out fairly quickly as well. But they do say they believe it'll be about the middle of next year before a lot of this vaccine can be with a lot of people in the world, Julia. Yeah, makes sense. Fred Pikkin in Berlin, thank you very much for that. And sorry for rushing you. I'm going to rush the goodbye now too because I've stolen more time than I should. That's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. Stay safe and I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.